And now, if you would, uh, turn with me to the end of Luke chapter 6 in your Bibles. And uh, if you care to do so and are able, uh, feel free to stand as I read from Luke chapter 6, uh, starting at uh, verse 46. Excuse me, uh, verse 43. We'll read through the end of the chapter. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I show you uh, what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you. We find ourselves this morning wrapping up uh, this very famous sermon of Jesus in Luke chapter 6. And if you remember, he's gathered his disciples around, and he's unpacked a very challenging teaching about what it means to really be a follower of his, a true disciple, a real learner, if you will. And before we go into our passage for today, I think that Luke 6 has forced us to think critically uh, about the kind of objections that we see today as Christ followers. Uh, as we've studied this word, and you know that in our current climate that a lot of people have a lot of opinions about these kinds of things, and I hope that you've seen, just as we've studied this, that a lot of them, when we give our attention uh, to what Jesus actually says, um, that a lot of these objections can be met. So, for example, uh, think with me that objection number one, often people will repeat something to this effect, that the stories of Jesus are really just inventions of the church, that it's all a bunch of myth, that it's kind of on uh, the level of Little Red Riding Hood or something like that. It's just uh, a number of people sitting around a room, and they invented a story in order to give themselves power. People say things like that. Now, what have we learned from Luke? We said, well, Luke's a sophisticated writer, that he's pleading with us from the very beginning of his gospel, that he's a careful, meticulous historian, that he's compiled sources, and at every turn, what it seems that we have here is something much more akin to Greco-Roman biography. That 2,000 years ago, we had other people writing lives of, of others, and the Gospels fit in that kind of a mold. So when we study the actual words that are put down, the Gospels themselves, who Luke was, how he lays out his case, the language in which he uses, uh, that we see something, again, much more like real history. Not to mention, we even looked at the naming of the disciples and that those are the exact kinds of names that we would expect in first century Israel-Palestine. And uh, we have real peace people in real places that to say simply that uh, the stories of Jesus are made up, I think, is intellectually unfair. Objection number two. They say, well, you know, all that Jesus stuff is, is for weak people. 
It's the old uh, Karl Marx, you know, it's an opiate for the masses. Or if you prefer Frank Sinatra, remember he said, well, I think uh, whatever helps you get through the night. Uh, is Jesus on that level? He's just kind of, for, for all those who just can't cope with life, then you, you kind of bring Jesus into your system. And I would challenge that this way, as we've looked at Luke 6, that Jesus challenges our natural instincts on every level. If you have with me read Luke 6, you said what he lays out actually is some of the most challenging teachings we could ever confront. That it's almost as if the very opposite of what we would want to do is what Jesus lays down to be his true disciple. You remember back to the blessings and the curses or the blessings and the woes, right? Who are the blessed? The poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the reviled. And who does Jesus offer a word of caution to? The rich, the fool, the laughing, and those who are man-pleasers, right? Or those who, who sp others speak well of. And you say, well, that's exact opposite of what I would want. Uh, why does Jesus call me to this high standard? Because he's making a claim on our lives that this is true discipleship, that far from being an opiate for weak people, Jesus challenges his followers. He gives them a standard that goes against the very fiber of our beings, and it is distinct, which leads us to, I think, objection three, right? So inventions of the church, Jesus is for weak people, or objection three, uh, that is that Jesus is just not that profound, um, or, if you will, that he's irrelevant. Uh, some would say, well, you know, Jesus, that's for old, that's old-fashioned. I mean, nobody really believes that anymore. Those teachings are kind of defunct. That, 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 that's not viable in today's world. And I would say, look again. Say, isn't it the case that what Jesus teaches is what all of our hearts long for? You say, he asks us to love our enemies. He's the one who tells us to, gives us the golden rule and asserts it positively. Not only are we to avoid the things that uh, we don't want to have done to us, but we're to do the things, actively do them the way they would want to be done for us. Say, there's nothing like this. Say, this is profound teaching. Or how about last week? We talked about judgment, that Jesus is clear that we're to look at our own sin and take it a lot more seriously than we would the sin of other people. Say, the exact opposite again of what we would do that Jesus is profound that he cuts deep that his teachings are what our hearts long for that he's as relevant today as that he, as he's always been then maybe objection four which is where we'll look at more today that Christianity is nothing more than a stale philosophy or another way of saying it is it doesn't have any legs that it, it's not something that can be lived out. It's just a kind of mental ascent. You can be lazy and be a Christian. All you have to do is say yes to a bunch of slogans. That objection, we would say no. That as you read, as I did with Mike, say what Jesus calls us to is in action, a way of behaving in the world, a way of living. It's to be lived out every day, not some stale commitment of the past, but actually a lifestyle. And today, as we would see, that Jesus lays out this in two very clear illustrations, one about a tree and fruit, and the other one about buildings and foundations. We could say fruit and foundations. And so we'll begin with the fruit in verses 43 to 46. Again, these kind of lazy objections that people make cannot be upheld when we actually study what the Bible says. So firstly, fruit and uh, fruit before foundations, verses 43 and 46. What Jesus is saying here, he, he lays out this image. He says, don't you know that you tell what kind of a tree it is by the nature of its fruit? Say, so how do you know it's an apple tree? Well, you see it growing apples. Or this week, someone very graciously from the church family brought me an Ohio peach from their own yard. You say, well, you know that's a peach tree 
because it produces peaches. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying people will ultimately know what the core of your being is about by the kind of fruit you produce. That it's nonsense to think that something good can come from an evil or unhealthy root, right? That's why he's saying, can figs come from the thorn bushes? I mean, can you have a nice uh, edible thing to eat from a thorn? Or can you have grapes from a a bramble bush? Absolutely not. Say more likely you have good fruit coming uh, from a good and healthy tree. And here's the point, I think, and I've said this before in sermons, but it's something we'll repeat over the years because it is a distinctive of our faith. That Jesus believes, Jesus teaches, that human beings work from the inside out. I think that all other ways of viewing the world, say, be they other religions or even false Christianities, uh, will teach that a person works from the outside in. What do I mean by that? A lot of people think that we're going to become a lot better as a people, as a society, if we make what we can call cosmetic changes. So you have those who say, look, if we just put the right educational system in place, if we just get the right philosophies taught to the young people, we set up the right parameters, then they're gonna become good people. Or perhaps you say something like the distribution of wealth. Say, well, if we just get that mixture right, that if we you know, uh, send the dollars where they need to go, then we're gonna produce uh, really, really good citizens. And the fact of the matter is, is whatever you make, say education's very good, and to have a better distribution of wealth, those are good things, but they don't change the heart. Say, we all know people who have had wonderful educations and have a lot of money and have just the right circumstances, but they're, they're rotten people. Say, what does Jesus say? Jesus says that outside-in stuff doesn't work. It's all, it's all fake. It's, it's phony. You, you can fake that. You can manipulate it. Really what needs to be happening is that we need to work from the inside out. We need to be changed at our heart. You know, one story that I think brings this out very clearly, brilliantly told, again, turning to our high school literature courses, is Golding's Lord of the Flies. You remember that story, right? That this is the story where you have a bunch of uh, well-educated, posh British boys stranded on an island, and uh, they try to use their reason, uh, the highest principles of morality, to set up uh, how they should run the island. And this goes well for a time until what we see is the fallen human will gets in the way that the sin nature invades, and ultimately that the island uh, turns out very badly for them, that these high-minded principles simply don't work. That you can't erect a system that can manipulate or manufacture an outcome if the problem is really the human heart. And it's like the prophet Jeremiah said so long before even Jesus, right? The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can comprehend it? See, Jesus is right clear. Say, any other religion you get, you say, well, if you just do these principles, do these axioms, think a little bit differently, or from a political humanist perspective, let's adapt these parameters, and then we're on our way to becoming just the right society. That stuff's never going to work. See, what we need is someone to grab hold of our hearts. What does Jesus mean by the heart? He means the very core of who we are. Of course, he's not talking about the heart, the organ. He's talking about what really makes us tick. We could call it our motivational system. What gets us up in the morning? What what do we think about? What are our priorities? Who's the core of our being? That's where he's driving. He says, if that's changed and softened, if that part of us surrenders to Jesus, that's how we produce good fruit. In fact, not only 
do we produce good fruit then? But I'd say it's as if we can't help but produce that kind of fruit, right? In the same way that an apple tree naturally, you know, spontaneously produces apples, so it is in the life of the Christian that the one who surrendered to Christ can't help but delight in his grace, can't help but show the others around him kindness and what it means to be in Jesus, to show virtue and, and love. That's who the Christian is, and it pours out of him. You know, this can be a scary thing, but I just wonder if we took a moment and asked those who know us the best, say, what kind of fruit do I produce? You say, it's scary, right? We're hesitant to ask those who know us the best. Say, am I exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians? Am I a patient person? And am I a kind and gentle person? Do I exercise self-control in increasing measure? These are the marks of what it means to be a Christ follower. How am I impacting those around me? You know, yesterday we had a memorial service for one of our brothers, um, uh, member Chuck Bontrager. And as I was at that funeral, it was very interesting. Chuck worked at MTD down in Valley City. And how many of his colleagues got up and talked about the impact he had, about his kindness, about how he, uh, his joy, his sense of humor. But you know what else they said? They said everyone said Chuck had a strong faith that it's clear looking at Chuck's life that he was a man who bore fruit where he was. And we ask that question, we look back at our lives, if we profess to be Christians, we say, are the things we're involved in, do we generally bless them? Is it, have we shown a mark of, of Christness on, on those engagements that we've had? Would people say, you know, we were, we were a little bit better for having, having you around because you've represented Christ so well. Is that the kind of fruit we're leaving? Or are we like those others, right? That we talk in a foul manner, that we're never thinking about our faith, that we look out of ourselves, and it's very obvious to those who would watch us to say, you know what, that's not much fruit there. That's selfishness. You see, what this tree is about, this tree metaphor is about, is that those who are really disciples of Jesus understand that we can't fake it. We can't be phonies. We can't change the outside, but rather we've surrendered our hearts to Jesus. Say, Lord, I have rebelled against you. I've got nothing good to offer. No amount of social, social conditioning is going to make me into a, to, to really a good person at my core. I need your grace to change my heart, to conform me into the likeness of Jesus. I need to be forgiven my sins, and I need to be made right. And out of that, out of that truth, I can do the things that please God. That's the good fruit. Now, I think there's an objection here, isn't there? The objection's this. You say, wait a second. There are a lot of non-Christians who do good things. Is that true? You say, yeah, it is true. There are a lot of people who are atheistic and, and humanistic, and they can do wonderful things in this life. But here's the difference. That an atheist, by definition, cannot do good things to the glory of God, which is our very purpose. That if you're a Christ follower, right, you've come to see and say, I'm God's creature in my time here, whatever it might be, that my job is to serve as his ambassador, to bring more weightiness to him, to glorify him, to point people towards him. That's my purpose. That the fruit in my life ought to be about pointing people to Jesus. And otherwise, if I don't have Christ in my life and if I don't acknowledge God, I can do a lot of good things 
but aren't they just for the here and the now and maybe for many people even an eye to themselves? So the, the key is, it, can non-Christians do good things? Yes, they do do a, God, a lot of good things, but they don't do them for the glory of God because they don't acknowledge God. It's for us, the real disciples, to say, I've been changed. I haven't been cleverer than the others. I haven't outpaced the others, but what I've done is that I've surrendered to Christ. I've let him come in. And out of the overflow of what he's done in my life, uh, from that grace, from his unconditional love to me, while I was a wretch and a sinner, outflows the fruit of what it looks like to be in him, those fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of representing him, him well. So what's the point of the tree and the fruit? Friends, real disciples work from the inside out. We got to be those with the tender heart. We don't want to fake it. We don't want to manipulate it. But we want to rest in what God has done in Jesus and how that's been true for us. And from that, the fruit flows forth. We can't help but produce fruit. We can't help but represent Jesus. So Christian life works from the inside out. Now, what about the foundation now from verse 46 and forward? So now Jesus pivots, right? This kind of uh, a violent clash of metaphor to a foundation. See, I like thinking about a foundation for faith. Say many have seen a large buildings go up. If you go downtown Cleveland or really to any metropolis that you'll see uh, the biggest and strongest buildings always begin with what? With a deep hole. That sometimes they go way down. I mean, I remember watching these buildings and say, when are they gonna actually build? That they've been working for months. Well, what are, they do what are they doing? That they're doing the hard work of digging a deep foundation so that edifice that's built up on that foundation will be strong, that it won't collapse when the wind comes. See, that's what Jesus is driving on here, the same in the ancient world as it is today. How the foundation is will determine how the house goes. And notice the difference Jesus is comparing. Say, what's the good foundation? What's the house that's built on the rock is the, is the one that does what he hears? Or in other words, there are hearers where hearers and doers. See, many over the centuries... In the church, you say we've been good hearers, that there's been good church attendance, uh, that many have uh, sat through many a sermon and they've heard. They've heard the words of the Bible spoken and preached and they've even been able to repeat, say they're very good hearers, but that doesn't cut it. There were to be hearers and doers. That it was taught to me as a young man, say the only Bible you have is the one that you obey. That what Jesus is driving at, say, all this stuff that I've been talking about, that he's been talking about in Luke 6, that is, he says it's not meant to just be stored above the shoulders, as important as that is. We don't want to diminish the hearing at all. But if it stops there and it doesn't come out into your life, then that's not what we're after. The real discipleship is about living it out. And here he's saying this firm foundation on Jesus' words is a secure foundation a way of operating in the world. And I hear, again, I think I can feel the objections or the way that people think about this, say, I don't want to commit my life to only one thinker. If I commit my life to Jesus, that means I have to give up all the other fun ways of living, right? A lot of people reason that way. They say, I don't want to commit to a foundation that is an absolute sense of principles to operate by in the world because that's way too confining. Here's what we want to note, and stay with me here, is that when we reject Jesus or the idea of a foundation in Jesus altogether, that that in itself 
is a way of operating in the world, right? That in itself is a foundation. So if you're saying, I don't want Jesus as my foundation because that's too confining and I want to do what I want. Well, that way of looking at the world that is a selfish way that I'm going to do it myself is in a way a foundation. It's a very shaky foundation. And what happens when we do that, when we run our lives ourselves, at least, uh, you know, true, I think, in, in my life and any who've uh, drift from the Lord, that the way that you operate in the world begins to be painfully inconsistent. In other words, that I default to a position, I say, it's not Jesus, I want to do whatever I want whenever I feel like it, because that's, uh, that's the default position, that when we do that, we run into a lot of pain in life. Think about, I've got four areas there on the outline that i just like to tease out for a moment. And think about these questions, very basic questions. They're not even religious questions. They're just ones I think every person operating in, in the world in Northeast Ohio would probably ask. And think about how you answer this if you reject Jesus in a foundation. So, so for starters, say, how do I understand and use my body? So here you are, you're growing up and maturing, and you have to say, well, you know what? There are ways that I can use my body that, that feel really good. That if I go out and indulge and I, I do what feels good and I look at whatever I, I want and say, well, that feels good. That must be a good thing to do. I'll operate on that principle. Say, what happens as you get a little bit older? Well, that way of operating starts to confront something else that you want or a lot of people want and that is say maybe a long-term committed relationship and what we realize is that the way that i was using my body before creates a lot of problems for the way that i want to use my body now that is to maybe be faithful to a spouse that you start to run into maybe things like commitment issues or uh shall we say um you know uh faithfulness issues so what's happened is that we said, I'm not going to look to Jesus. I don't need a foundation. I'm going to run my life as I want to see fit. Well, what should I do? Well, I'm going to use my body any way that I want. However, that ran, runs right into being a long and faithful partner. What's happened? That my principles have been inconsistent because I've not built wisely. I've built on an unwise foundation, one that contradicts itself and one that causes pain. How about another question? So question one, how do I use my body and understand it? What about this one? What role does my work play in my life? Again, you say, not a religious question at all, is it? See, I think a lot of people say, well, my work is everything to me. Say, I've devoted most of my, I devote most of my hours in, in my week to that, that I've tried really hard to get this job, that I went to college to do this job, that I'm climbing the ladder at my job. My goal is to go higher and higher and earn more and more. And so much so to say, if that was to say, that is, the, that is really, really important to me, my, my job. And maybe you've worked tirelessly, but what happens if we have that view of work, say, just about ourselves and about climbing? You say, what happens is it begins to put pressure on our dearest relationships. You say, is my job about climbing that ladder and getting a bit further and getting that promotion and earning more? Or do I say, again, if you're operating in a Christian framework, to say maybe my job is uh, something, uh, a gift from God, and I'm to represent him here, and uh, that way that there's no going to be a competing influence between my job and the relationships that matter. So again, you have these uh, inconsistencies potentially when we operate in our fallen nature that we don't have clear principles to guide us and they can confront one another how about this one i like asking young business guys this because they all have to take business ethics uh, so business ethics both in their job or maybe they took it at business school but i asked them i say where do business ethics come from 
uh, you know, and they'll kind of look at me funny, say, well, we didn't talk about that. We know what business ethics are. But I say, well, where do they come from? I mean, are they just socially constructed? Are they just kind of floating out there? Do people just invent them and you decide that this is the best way to go? And you see what happens if we think that our ethics, our business ethics are just socially constructed, that they're not really attached to anything or they're to, you know, maybe can be, uh, they're not as serious as we might think. Say that maybe at a time then we're more inclined to cut some corners. However, you say, again, if you've been operating on the foundation of Jesus, you say, actually, these ethical principles come from a good God and a moral lawgiver. That no matter what happens here, even if I can get away with something, I'm ultimately accountable to God. That ethics and the right way of living must have an ontic referent, a real place out there, and that's in the person of God. That's the way that they can be consistent. Or how about the last one? What is my grid for parenting? You say, are my children just a way of maybe, um, you know, the things that I wasn't able to accomplish? Do I have that expectation upon them that I just want them to do better and better? And then maybe I can boast to my friends, say, look at how great my sons are. Is that what kids are for? Or you say, is it better to maybe think again on the foundation of Jesus that my children are a gift from God? And I'm uh, a steward, really, of their personalities, and I'm to point them to Jesus. The only point that I'm making is this, is that a lot of us say, I don't want, uh, I don't want a clear way of operating in the world. I'm going to do it myself. I certainly don't want Jesus because that's way too confining. And what I'm suggesting is that when we do that, our default position is just, I'm going to do what I think is best. When we do that, we run into inconsistencies in our life, and oftentimes those inconsistencies can cause a great deal of pain for us and a great deal of pain for those around us. How much better, I love the title of this book that I read some years ago, The Fabric of Faithfulness, that there's a beautifully woven tapestry uh, by Jesus when we follow him. Say, when we build our lives on that foundation, you say it becomes, I guess I'm clashing my metaphors now, but this building, strong, and, and well-built, a way of living in the world that's not inconsistent, a way of honoring him, and one where we can go through time and, and really to uh, live faithful lives and one of purpose. That's what he's driving at here. Who's the wise person? The wise person is the one who has a solid foundation in Jesus' words, who hears them and does them. And over time, that's consistent. And over time, that is the view that wins the day. Jesus' words and our yoking ourselves to him is our firm foundation. And be very careful, I would say. Going back to a little verse from last week, back in uh, verse 40, Jesus would say this just before our passage today, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. You see, in those words, there's a little bit of a sting. You say Jesus, of course, is talking about himself, but there's another sting in there. It says, be very careful who you allow to guide you. Be very careful who the voice is that you're paying attention to because you know what? You're going to be like that teacher. And if your view is to just pick and choose or what uh, my dear mentor Jonathan Burnham taught me, he says, if the alternative is the eclectic hodgepodge of unbelief, in other words, I'm just grabbing from here and here and I just do whatever I want, then I'm going to run into inconsistencies and I'm going to be, I'm gonna be in, a, in a lot of pain. How much better to choose Jesus as your teacher? to say he's perfectly consistent, that when I honor him, that I can live through my life in a way that really can bless others and it can really bring a great flourishing to ourselves. You know, you think of the others who've 
uh, dabbled in these areas. I think of Bertrand Russell, who, of course, was the atheistic mathematician. You know what he said? He said, I built my life on the foundation of unyielding despair. You say, no wonder when we kick Jesus out, that's what we're left with, unyielding despair, because we wake up and say, all we have is ourselves, and we don't know very much, and what do I do with all this baggage? Now, I turn to you now in these uh, language here of the storms of life. You say a lot of times, you know, you don't feel any storms, right? I mean, I think of even the marriage vows. I'm up, you know, with a couple, and they're saying for better or for worse. And you say, well, I'm doing just fine. And you think, well, not today. I'm, I'm doing just, just fine. There are no storms. The streams aren't rising. There's no wind. But don't we know? Don't we all know that the trials of life come? That there are real uncertainties in this life, real things that are fearful, be they health concerns of loved ones or financial downturns or pandemics or whatever they would be, but real things that try us. You notice this image of the firm foundation on the rock, that it withstands the storms of life. Why? Because it's not based on anything here. It's based on the words and persons person of Jesus. You know, maybe you're a non-Christian, you're watching this sermon, and you just think, and maybe something here we've been talking about, about a foundation and building, building your house on that foundation, and maybe you're saying today, you know what, I'm like that house on the sand, that I've built my entire life on just what I thought was best and kind of chasing my own, uh, my own ambition, and you know what, I'm at a place now where the house is kind of falling down that there's a great ruin because the foundation isn't good. And maybe these trials have been particularly acute the last six months, and maybe you've had some real challenges. You say, I've tried everything. Well, don't you see here what we're called to? Say, it's not too late today to say, look, I want to turn to Jesus. It's in him and him alone where I can build a, a firm foundation. Is it a lot of work? Of course, digging into the rock and building a foundation is much work. But however, when we do, it pays great dividends that he's the firm foundation and the solid rock on which to build our lives. So friends, the fruit, the Christian life works from the inside out. We want to bear fruit. We want to be hearers and doers of the word, those who build on the strong foundation of Jesus that aren't easily shaken. And when we do so, we can be consistent. And I'll leave us with this today. So there's a nice, a very interesting phrase, I think, that I'll actually grab from John 3, but I think is applicable here. If you read John 3, what's called for is those who do the truth. Those who do the truth. You say, that's a wonderful phrase. You say, we've heard of affirming the truth. We've heard of believing the truth, right? That's really important. But what then if we do the truth? That's what Jesus is calling us here, right? Those who hear my words and do them in verse 47. That's what he's after. That in one way, this passage is really about the oldest of problems for God's community, that is hypocrisy. To say many of us have given mental assent and we've affirmed things and maybe even believed them, but we failed to do. And what Jesus is calling his disciples to is this kind of consistent walk that we've channeled this sermon, that we've looked at it, and now we're to live it out. That we have opportunities each and every day with our loved ones and our colleagues to say think what's coming do I what do I how do I behave when I'm wronged how do I behave when I'm angry 
Do I actually love those? What about my judgmental spirit? Am I the one quick to point out uh, the, the flaws of other people, to criticize them, to look at that other speck? Or am I the one slow to judge others and quick to judge myself? Say so there's a chance to practice these virtues. We're to live it out because otherwise, if we don't, we're like those who say, Lord, yes, Lord, but we don't obey him. You see how confusing that must have been. Say to acknowledge someone as Lord, Master, is to do as they say. You know, we Christians are those who call Jesus Lord, that he's our master. Maybe the earliest creed in the church is to say Jesus is Lord. When we say Jesus is Lord, it smuggles in this idea of obedience. We want to be those who do the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, we've spent a number of weeks now looking at, I think, a series of sermons that convicts us or convicts me a lot. Say, I see a standard here that I can't meet. But I do know that God wants to conform us right into the likeness of Jesus, that this is the call to true discipleship, to really following him. May we be those with tender hearts, those who respond and bear fruit because what Jesus has done in our life is real. May we build this, our lives on the foundation of his words. And most of all, may we behave in the world in such a way that shows others we take him seriously, that he really is Lord and we really obey him. A key point I take from Kevin Van Hooser in his book, Hearers and Doers, that comes right out of this passage. But he says, true discipleship is knowing how to follow Jesus in any situation. Isn't that what we're doing here? That as a church family, we want to build each other up, call each other to true discipleship, to know how to follow Jesus in every situation, to live it out, that it's an everyday thing, that it's a lifestyle, not just a commitment of the past, that following Jesus does, in fact, have legs, that we want to be as true disciples. I'll pray. Father, we see today about fruit and foundations that we can't fake the fruit, and I pray that we would be those who really uh, recognize that the good that we do for your glory must flow from the change that you've worked inside us, that we've been regenerated, and that we would bear fruit in this world as you would see fit. We would also be those who build on your words and really obey them so there are no inconsistencies, and we become strong buildings for you, and that onlookers who might be feeling a bit shaky in these times that they feel like the foundation is their sand, would look and say, what is that foundation? And we'd be able to cheerfully say, well, it's the grace of God and Jesus. And help us to be a church, Lord, who takes this seriously as we've, uh, again, been, been renewed, I think, by the call to true discipleship. May we build each other up to this effect. Work, work your, your goodness in us. Work your grace in us. In Christ's name, amen.